So uh, this morning will be uh, January 20th, 2013. That is so strange to say, 2013. Our message today is called Dying to Live. Amen? Dying to Live. Uh, I think the appropriate place to start is with some obvious things. Uh, we don't sit anymore. Look around you. When a family walks in with four people, uh, it's very difficult to find four seats in a row. Now, we're going to help with that. We're going to be godly. We're going to be Christians. We're going to scoot over. Our young people will sit on the floor. We'll do whatever it takes. But the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to build out next door. That it will bring at least two and a half times the seating to this room. Can you put uh, Romans 15.4 on the screen? I want to show you something else, though, that, uh, that came to me a few weeks ago. <laughs> and it comes from Romans 15, <coughs> verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Things that happened that were written down, I think we're still in this monitor up here, things that were written down in the past were written down for the purpose of bringing you an encouragement, an encouragement under correction, an encouragement on to strengthening, an encouragement for whatever sake. Well, it occurred to me that the scripture contains many things that are in our past, and that's wonderful. But a man brought me a brick from Azusa Street. How many of you know what Azusa Street is? So Azusa Street was an outpouring. It birthed many of the denominations that call themselves full gospel or spirit-filled. We're not a part of any denomination. But we're going to take this brick, and we're going to put it in the center of the stage in the next room that we... Uh, build as a sanctuary, and there's a reason for this. We believe that we have a connection with those that have gone before us that have paved this way. Yeah. We believe that we have ownership of a present time period that we're responsible for, and we believe that we're supposed to lay a road into the future called the King's Highway for others to follow on. Can you say amen to that? Amen. This answers about five questions for people when they walk through the door. What kind of church are you? We're the kind that believes and hungers for the moving of the Spirit. Amen. Secondly, this comes from Hebrews 1. It will be Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, regarding our building project. It says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, if the Word is living, if it's active, if it's sharper than a double-edged sword, then He didn't just speak to the writer of Hebrews. He has spoken to our fathers in the past, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. He has spoken to our fathers, but in this day, He speaks to us. Now, if the writer of Hebrews could say God has spoken through the prophets many times in various ways, but He's spoken to us in a unique way, through His Son, then I think we can say something unique as well. If God moves, and He is moving, upon this congregation... While it will bear a resemblance to moves that have happened in the past because our God has a beautiful character and a beautiful nature, it may very well be unique to us. So we're not looking to reproduce anything. We're looking to hunger for the Lord and reproduce the call of a man's heart towards God because we know the heavens want to answer. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So what we're going to do in this sanctuary next door is we're going to provide a way for more of us to meet and call on God together. Is that fair enough? Yes. Now, I'll let you be the judge of what kind of preacher I am. That's, that's up to 
anybody's uh, particular taste. You know what you can't be the judge of? What kind of student I am. You may not know it, but I listen to the words that you preach. So if Zeke preaches about grieving and hungering, being in anguish of spirit over lost souls, it gets in me. I hear it. If Pastor Bartlett preaches and he speaks about what God will and will not accept and how the priests have accepted offerings that God wouldn't accept, it gets into my spirit. I've been reflecting on the words that God has brought forth from our midst. And uh, I want to start with one that was preached last week. This comes from Malachi 1, starting in verse 6, and it relates to our direction. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, if I am a father, where is the honor due me? And if I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Now you know, he goes on to say, it is because they have offered sacrifices that were blind in verse 8. They have brought things that were not their best. And that message was preached wonderfully. There's no reason to preach it again. I want to tell you that as we move forward, not only to build a sanctuary that can be seen, but one that is only demonstrated in your lives, we're going to hold up a standard that simply says, if you do not meet this standard, you must call upon the power of God and rise to meet it, but we will not accept less than what God deserves. We're going to do that because our king is worthy of a very great honor, yeah. and he has a very great name. This has nothing to do with exclusion. It has nothing to do with casting out. We're an inclusive group. Look around. Having said that, our king is worthy of the honor that is due him. And our fellowship will always be about those who are willing to give their very all for him. And nothing less will ever be accepted. Can you say amen to that? Amen. What does amen mean, saints? So be it. I want you to know that this is a binding oath. You can hold me to it and I will hold you to it. But we've agreed together in the presence of God today that we will accept nothing from each other except something worthy of God. This is a high standard. It's a high standard, but it's one that the Spirit will help you meet. That is the point. As I began to reflect upon that message, another verse hit me. I was sitting beside a lake in Austin, and it's verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. These have to do with commitments. My first commitment to you is that we will not accept from you something that is unworthy of God. We won't lie to you. We won't pacify your conscience. We won't pretend it's okay with us if it's not okay with God. The second commitment has to do with useless fires. God said he would rather shut the doors to the temple. He would rather close the doors to his own temple than have people lighting useless fires inside of it. Useless fires might remind you of Leviticus 10, an unauthorized fire. King James says strange fire. This has to do with lots of passion, lots of hype, but no sincere direction from the Lord. This ministry will do whatever it takes to get the mind of Christ and move in it. And that may mean that you, having a wonderful suggestion, having a wonderful idea, whatever it might be, may just have to wait. Because if we don't hear it from the heavens, we simply will not do it. I will not be guilty of lighting a useless fire. Come on, programs draw people. You give people titles and they stay because they love them. 
I have no interest in such things. None. Neither do the other leaders in this church. So when you see passion in here, it will be passion from the Lord. When you see fire in here, it will be fire that came from God's altar, birthed out of prayer. And we invite you all to our personal prayer time, which starts at 6 a.m. on Sundays. Here's the third commitment. This comes from Malachi 2 and verse 6. Speaking of Levi, God says of him, True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. What a high standard. What a high task. We will rise to meet this standard, and we will fulfill this task. You will be able to count on the men and women that serve in this place to turn you from sin. To speak true instruction whether you want to hear it or not. To tell you the truth in love whether you're being loving or not. This has never drawn a giant crowd, but it surely has refined a mob into saints many times through history. These are commitments that we're making as our church grows. Because we're going to cover with you what our original vision is, and it hasn't changed. There's just more of you that are interested in it. Amen. Come on, say amen to that, David. Amen. David, do you remember the days when I used to go beat on your door because it was church time? <laughs> David had the misfortune of living two doors down from me. Our church started in a living room. When it was church time, if David was not there, I went and got him. <laughs> <laughs> we are passionate about seeing the work of God done because he has lit a fire on our hearts. As I began to reflect on the message, something uh, unexpected happened. Come on now, I have been preaching for almost 20 years. There are not very many things that happen in the Word that are completely unexpected. But I found one. It comes from the 11th verse. Judah has broken faith. The detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. Now I'm going to cherry pick this. I'm going to pull it right out of context. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. I've been preaching and teaching for almost 20 years, and I teach almost exclusively that you are the sanctuary of God, that you, as Peter said, are the living stones, that you are being built into a spiritual house, that your very body is the temple of God, and I have preached it so fervently that I overlooked something. There was an actual brick-and-mortar building, one that I have denigrated many times in my thoughts because men did corrupt things at it. But the Scripture says in the 11th verse that the Lord loved that sanctuary. Amen. He didn't just say it there. You can go to Haggai, the first chapter, in the 8th verse. There he said that he, uh, I see in the NIV, I think, enjoys it. No, he takes pleasure in it. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Why on earth would the God that created all of the elements that we see take pleasure in a sanctuary? Why would he say that he loves it? Well, it's not because of costly stones. It's not because of excellent craftsmanship. It's not because it was the biggest or the best, although it was a wonder of the world in Solomon's day and in Zerubbabel's day. This is not why. It's because men so honored his name 
that they did something sacrificial, something contrary to their own nature. They gave the very best that they had yeah. in honor of a king that they couldn't see, but they knew ruled everything, believing his kingdom was coming to the earth. And so the Lord loved it. It was a place where his reputation dwelt. It was a place where he would be honored among the nations. <coughs> Jesus cleared out the temple and said, My Father's house will be a house of prayer for the nations. Amen. You are God's temple. I am God's temple. And yet the things that we build on this earth as directed by Him and not useless fire were meant to honor His name. So I'm going to call upon you this morning to do a couple things. One is to search your heart seriously and say, am I bringing God the very best? Some of you have done this, so I ordered the air conditioners. I spent about 150% of what you gave. Isn't that a blessing? The air conditioners will be here soon because I would never want you to sweat in the house of God. We ordered the lights. They're back ordered, actually, and praise God because we have to figure out how to pay for them. Because we would never want you to have to squint at the Word of God. But I do want you to understand, saints, that if you had to squint at the Word, if you had to sit and sweat for the Word, the Word would still be worth it. Because He is a great King. He is a great King. I don't want to build the Kingdom of God in a building. I want to build the Kingdom of God in your lives. But since we no longer fit in this building, it seems appropriate that we have a larger one, one that's connected to our past, one that's connected to our present, one that is connected to our future. Haggai spoke not only of God taking pleasure in it, but in the second chapter, in the sixth verse, it will be on your screen in just a second. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. I want to tell you that there will be a great shaking in this land. It's coming. Many of you can feel it. It's as if the Lord has dimmed the light so that you can shine more brightly. It's as if He has set the stage for you to excel in His kingdom. There will be a great shaking coming in those who are hungry for the unadulterated word. Those who are hungry for his presence with no additives. Those that are hungry for a true move of God, he will flood into our lives. And there's a reason for this. The Lord is interested in shaking up the status quo. Amen. If he's nothing else, he's a revolutionary. Amen. He shows up in a system that is broken and boldly proclaims himself the answer and then makes you trust him to see that answer come about. But it's not as if he's not given you a reason to trust him. Has the Lord been good to you, saints? Yes. Who in here can charge the Lord guilty of sin that he has not provided for you breath? Who in here can say that he's not provided for you food? After all, you're still here. How many of you can say that you've used that breath, used that strength, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength to serve Him. Because this is what He deserves. And we will give Him nothing less. Can you say amen one more time? Amen. Do you want a shaking so that the desired of the nations will come to the Lord? Yes. Are you willing for anything to happen 
so that the desired of the nations will come to the Lord. Yes. I began to tell a pastor in another city about our bus ministry, and he looked at me and said, Why? What the Lord desires is often very different than what men desire. What you think you need from the Lord might be really different than what you actually need from the Lord. I'm convinced that we don't need more pretty sermons. We don't need more warm, fuzzy experiences. What we need are men and women who will share the life of God with us on a daily basis so that our walk can become more than simply slogans and sayings. How many of you know that the prophet Isaiah said, This people's lips are always praising me, but their hearts are far from me. So I will astound them with wonders, he said. I believe the Lord is astounding us with wonders. Who in here has seen a healing this year? We're only 20 days into the year. Look around. Keep your hands up. Look around, saints. Oh, my goodness. Has the Lord been good to us? Let me talk to you about our vision. Let me tell you how it was born. In 1993, I had a radical salvation experience. I had it because I needed it. I had it because God had mercy on me. I did not have it because I was more righteous. I did not have it because I was more hungry. I didn't have it because I was more prepared. I was simply in great need, and great need was met by great mercy. Can you say amen? Amen. So the Lord spoke to me with an audible voice. I'm sorry if that goes against the way you think the Lord speaks. It's my experience. And I don't have to argue it with anyone. I was there. Were any of you there? Okay, so it is a matter of personal experience. But either I am a liar 20 years later, or it's genuine and you are the fruit of that experience. Or at least being blessed by it. When this happened, I began to realize that Christianity was more about an inward more than being about an inward confession. It was more than simply ascending to certain thoughts. It should so revolutionize a life that your own mother looks at you as if you're a new human being. This is how it's supposed to work. Now, I immediately had aspirations to see all of my family experience what I had. How many of you have had those aspirations? Some did, some didn't. I was not in control of that, but you know what I was in control of? My one life. I now yielded it to the king. And if I would be obedient in any situation, I found out that he would add to me more anointing. He would add to me more of his blessings in the Holy Spirit. And so obedience led to obedience, and it began to have an effect upon my immediate family. And then two decades later, it's having an effect upon the nations of the world. And this birthed an idea for us. If you can reach a single life, that life is worth it. While everyone was focused on a global harvest and yet making little impact even on their local community. While everyone was focused on seeing masses rush in Tiger Stadium to hear a great evangelist speak, we began to focus on a single life, thinking that a man like Edwin would be worth it. That a man like JJ would be worth it. That a man like Alex would be worth it. Let me ask you for a second as we digress before we get into the actual text. What if you were the one that discipled Paul Youngie Cho? It's only one life, but would it be worth it? 
Oh, I don't know. He's been marginally fruitful, right? His church got a million people in it. What, 70, 80,000 pastors in it? They pray 24 hours a day. What is it worth? I heard this morning in the parking lot that a couple in this church is adopting a child. Oh, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of adoption, friends. All of us are adopted. You just don't know it. Let me ask you something. Is it worth the time? Is it worth the time to spend with that one family? The baby that they adopt from Haiti, well, where will he go? Where will she go? What will they do in their life? Is it worth it? How could you know? We are so short-sighted. We are so limited in our understanding. You could never know that what God does in a man today can impact generations to come. How about the inventor of penicillin? How about the inventor of the atomic bomb? How about the inventor of the modern altar call? I don't know. Think about it, friends. Who knows what Curtis will go on to do? Is it worth it? I wanted to have a focus that was not so broad that it ignored an individual. That it was not so broad that it took the focus off of one life at a time. Because God took the time, although He's fairly busy, He runs the universe, to speak to me personally. I never want to lose this culture in our church that one life, speaking to one life, one life sharing life with one other person is the best possible means of evangelism. It is the best possible means of discipleship. You say, well, it's awful slow, and it is incredibly effective. Amen. This comes from Acts 16. I was travailing in prayer in my living room because I was an utter failure in every way, I thought. I had affected so few lives. After a couple years of ministry in this town, a few crack addicts had been set free. A few relatives' lives were beginning to shape up. But not just a whole lot was going on. So I wormed my way out of bed in the middle of the night. And I went and began to whine and complain before the Lord. Am I the only one done that? It hit me as awful. I mean, I'm telling you more than you want to know now. But it really was the middle of the night. And it hit me in the middle of it when I felt the Lord's presence. I might want to go get a robe or something, you know? I'm in the presence of royalty. And here I am whining before him. And as I began to open my Bible, he showed me something. First off, he told me to quit whining and close my garage and put 50 seats in it. We had to sell our kitchen table to do it. But he spoke to me out of Acts 16, and it begins in the sixth verse. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia, and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the providence of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over here to Macedonia and help us. The Lord reminded me that it was not the devil. It was not opposition from the devil that had placed me in Sugar Land. I didn't run with my tail between my legs. The Lord had simply closed doors for me. He had directed me. And when I wanted to go to Hammond, Louisiana, the Spirit of Jesus said no. 
And when I wanted to make my home in Lafayette for an extended period of time, the Spirit of Jesus said no. Because there was this people that he cared very much about in Sugarland, Texas. I didn't know where Sugarland, Texas was. We took out a map. We knew it was near Houston. My wife put her finger on it and said, we'll live there. Wow. The Spirit of Jesus led us to start this work. Now, Paul is the one who has a vision. He had a vision of what? A man from Macedonia. So you would believe then that he's going to Macedonia to meet what? A man from Macedonia. Does that make sense to you? That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Let us keep reading. Standing and begging him, come over here to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Now, I'm three Bibles removed from the one that I was reading that day. We've experienced a few thefts in our ministry. But I circled the word we. Now, I'm not stupid. I've read this word a few times. I knew that Luke was writing. But I began to think about who all was we. Barnabas had just left. Who was we? Then I saw that Silas was added. Timothy was added. Luke was there. Paul had a vision, friends. And Paul shared the vision. How complicated was the vision? He saw a man of Macedonia saying, come over here and help us, plural. One man saying, help us. Apparently reaching one man could have an effect on whoever us is. And apparently one man having a vision could cause we to conclude we needed to go. The Lord began to tell me that He would add people that would adhere to the vision He had given me. They would join in it even at the cost of shedding their blood. Timothy had to shed his blood to follow Paul. He was one of the only New Testament converts that is said to have been circumcised. He shed his blood to follow Paul. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. One man has a vision, but the work of carrying it out, the preaching and teaching, was everyone's calling. Come on, do you have a calling in here today? Yes. Is your calling simply to sit here and say amen? What is your calling, saints? This ministry will always be about helping you to discover your calling. Preparing you to carry it out. It will never be about me and mine. Our vision is for you to accomplish what God called you to do. Michael Hutchinson has a vision. And it's our job to prepare him for it. Brad Hall has a vision. And it is our job to prepare him for it. This cannot be done from a distance. It cannot be done in a classroom alone. The classroom is to initiate the conversation. It only occurs through sharing our lives with one another, through working beside each other, for sharing in each other's failures and successes and learning from them. This is the method that Jesus taught his disciples. It's the method that all rabbis used with their students. It is a modern invention to place a sage on a stage and think this prepares us for world harvest. It doesn't. At best, it starts a conversation. So what happens then when you outgrow a living room and you outgrow a garage and you outgrow your first storefront church and then you outgrow your second storefront church? What do you do? How many people can you fit in your living room? 
How many people can you personally interact with in a day? But then God didn't call me alone, did He? You are here. And you're walking alongside. And you are joining in that vision of sharing your life with others. Valuing their life enough to share yours with them. This is what Elijah did when he laid on the widow's son and brought him back to life. It's what Elisha did when it took seven times to lay on that widow's son and bring him back to life. It is rubbing shoulders with those desired by God and not desired by men. So that they might see transformation. So that they might get what you have. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And there the next day to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Where are they staying? Macedonia. They saw a vision to go to Macedonia. Where did they go? Listen, friends, if you want to share your vision with me and tell me how called you are, the first thing that I want to see is steps towards your vision. If your vision is in Macedonia, but you are instead headed to Russia, your vision's wrong or you're wrong. I don't understand how this crept in the church, but everybody's calling, everybody's vision for something a long ways away and far, far off, as if it will never get here. Your calling is what you're doing today, friends. I can't tell you the number of people I know that are 40 years old now that are still waiting for their calling. And I want to say, what have you done in the last 20 years? The Lord has put work in front of you today. Are you doing it? It's our job to help you do it, but no one can do it for you. As one computer tech told me, I can explain this for you, but I cannot understand it for you. You have a calling. How seriously you take that calling is up to you, but we will take your calling as serious as you do. Look at this. They get to Macedonia, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Who did he see a vision of? A man. He's not met that fulfillment of that vision yet. God often takes you through more steps than you wanted to go. He often makes you persevere to develop character in you. He often makes you start in a slightly different place than you had envisioned. One of those listing was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloths of the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. In your life, there will always be people that are just there. But the Lord will also give you people in your life that respond to your vision, to your heart, to the message of your heart. So that the things that you feel anointed to talk about, you feel moved to share, God will open a place in their heart. This is your audience, friends, your congregation. They're distinct from the crowd. They're not simply the people who are around you. They're the people who are edified by being with you. Did you know that you're supposed to have those? Your life should be edifying to someone. You should be edified by someone, and you should be edifying someone. You should have a Paul-like figure in your life, and you should have a Silas-like figure in your life. Somebody that you look up to, and somebody that you run alongside, and even a Timothy figure, somebody that you can teach. 
You were called for more than sitting on your salvation with crossed arms. You were called for a purpose. As I share with you mine, my hope is that you become strengthened in yours. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. Real gospel ministry has never been done simply at altars. That is an initiation. It's the beginning of a conversation. It's the moving off of center. If you want to affect people's lives, we have to be in each other's houses. We have to be where each other live. And if we can't get where each other live, then we really don't know each other, do we? Now, I'm sorry that the world has accepted movie stars for pastors. Men who speak well, and so that must make them men of God worth following. But in biblical times, your character was everything. Your name was everything. And the way that you ran your own household was indicative of what God had called you or not called you to do. Now, I'm not asking you to simply evaluate me and see if I pass the test. I'm saying that having other people familiar with your life is good for you. I'm saying that accountability is necessary. I'm saying that ministry done from house to house is effective ministry. It has always been this way. You want an Acts church, a New Testament church? They grew from house to house. And Peter's shadow healed people. They didn't grow from cathedral to cathedral. They didn't rob from church to church. Ministry was done where life occurred. It was done in the home because this is where everyone lived and moved and had their being. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. (laughs) What an interesting thing. She persuaded us. I've been in cultures where if you will stay in their house, they consider it the greatest (laughs) honor. How big of an honor do you see it to bring people into your house? Is it a burden or an honor? Do you try to persuade them or dissuade them? How interested are are you in sharing your personal space with the lost? Because this is the way you take a nation. It starts with a life. It starts with a family. And then it begins to spread. And it must be the real authentic thing that has been shoulder to shoulder advanced. One life at a time. Now Lydia made good on her promise. She goes down in history as a worshiper of the living God. But Lydia was not the fulfillment of the vision. Lydia was quite obviously a woman. What did Paul see? The Lord will take you to the heads of households. And he does this because he desires an entire household to come to know him. Once while we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. Still not a Macedonian man, huh? T.L. Osborne once said about prayer for the sick. If I knew that the first 23 people that I prayed for would not get healed and the 24th would, I'd pray for the first 23 as fast as I could. Friends, I want to encourage you to take God's speed towards your vision. There will always be obstacles. There will always be preparations. But we cannot be always preparing and never performing. 
We are not professional students. We are not eternal students. We are men and women who are called of the living God and equipped by the living God to do the work of the living God. Once while we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. The Lord told me that the reason I was having a problem in Sugarland was all the people were saying the right things, but they were not motivated by the right spirit. I really didn't understand it. I just knew that as I drove down the street, I saw churches on every corner. But I saw lives so swamped by materialism that there was nothing sacrificial in it. And he began to open my eyes. When I gave Matthew and Cassidy an invitation to come and join us, it was not a pretty invitation. I used this as an example. I said, the people in the land that you're coming to say all of the right things, but they are not motivated by the Spirit of God. Wouldn't you think that the easiest thing in the world to tell would be, is this person possessed or not? It took the Apostle Paul many days to figure this one out. When he figured it out, he had absolute authority over it. But many days. A true story, not long ago, the Hutchinsons and the Stevens were in India. We were in a place with great monuments. Muramolai, is that where? And there's a fortune teller on the corner. And no kidding, she started following us around saying, these people are servants of the Most High God. Am I lying? Wow. Jesus doesn't need the testimony of those who are filled with a different spirit. <laughs> he doesn't need useless fire. You know what he needs? He needs men and women who are obedient to him at the cost of their lives. This is what he needs. <coughs> She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to that spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. How much opposition do you need to encounter to inherit the kingdom? When the apostles wanted to go back and encourage the church, strengthen the church, they strengthened them and encouraged them with these words. It's through many trials and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. They did not say that it's every day is Friday, that it is your best life now, that God wanted you rich. They did not say that He is your help in this life and heaven in the next. They did not say all of the ridiculous things that are being preached. They toiled. They struggled in sickness and in health. They made tents when they should have been being provided for by others. And they let us see it. Have you noticed that the Bible lets us in on the struggles of all of the great men of God? To be a great man of God in today's society, you cannot let anyone in on your struggles. Then how do you know they're really a great man of God? Every once in a while we get a newspaper article that this one choked his wife, that this one beat up his daughter, that this one ran off with his secretary, and then you're forced to the conclusion they preached well, but they didn't live well. I would rather preach poorly and live well, but how will you know if I don't let you in my life? Now let's take the focus off of me for a moment. You're witnessing. 
you are sharing the good things that God has given you, how will they know if it's real if they don't know your life? We live in a country where everyone says they have the gospel. Everyone. The words born again mean nothing. It is so polluted with religious jargon that when someone says they are born again, you have no idea what it means. So I started asking, when did your life change for the glory of God? And you get the same story over and over and over. I was born again at 3. I was born again at 8. I was born again at 10. When did your life change for the glory of God? Well, I was 22. I was 25. I was 19. How are we getting born again without any change in our nature? We live in a polluted land where everyone is saying the right thing, but nobody really knows how anybody is living. They've agreed not to look. I aim to change that. I think when you invite people into your personal space, they get to see the authentic gospel. The one that causes you to overcome the temper that you obviously have. The one that causes you to overcome the sickness that you're struggling with. The one that causes you to say, nevertheless, God, and trudge forward when others quit. This is the gospel. Amen. Not some fairy tale made for TV. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. What looks like your greatest disasters in life are often simply positioning you to fulfill the call of God on your life. It may look like God brought you here to fail or a failure brought you here. <coughs> But it may very well be that God is simply positioning you to fulfill what He has always desired from you. What happens if Joseph doesn't go into slavery? What happens if nobody lies about Joseph being immoral? What happens if Joseph is never in the prison? Friends, he would never make the palace. Perhaps we should not complain about where we are. We ought to embrace it as God's will for our lives. Say, but wait a minute. God desired more for me, and you can have it. All you have to do is be faithful to Him. Be obedient to Him. He will carry you into it. How many of you would be upset if you were arrested for doing a kind thing? The weekend I was born again, I was arrested for doing a kind thing. This is normal Christianity, friends. It's normal everywhere in the world except the bubble that we live in. They brought them before the magistrate and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us, to, us Romans to accept or practice. What an interesting thing. Has Paul ever been before another magistrate? Joy, would you put Acts 22-25 on the screen? Guys, stay right here in Acts 16. Because Paul is standing before a magistrate with Silas. And uh, this other time when he stands there, says, As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? It sounds like in Acts 22, Paul is not all that excited about catching a beating, huh? It sounds like when he stood before the magistrate and he saw the whip come out, he said, I'm a Roman. Did Paul acquire his Roman citizenship between the 16th chapter and the 22nd chapter? No. no. In fact, he discusses it in the 22nd chapter. The jailer says to Paul in the 22nd chapter, yeah, I acquired my citizenship at a high price. But Paul responds, I was 
born a Roman. I just want you to know that Paul did not become a Roman citizen later. He was a Roman citizen in Acts 16. Well, why in Acts 22 does he stop them before they beat him? And in Acts 16, we see a different response. In Acts 16, verse 21, no, 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrate ordered them stripped and beaten. Why does Paul not mention that he's a Roman citizen? I mean, is it God's will that we be beaten? I mean, I mean, God wouldn't do that, would he? I don't know. Let's ask Jesus. Is it any mistake that all of our theology revolves around the avoidance of anything difficult? <coughs> I personally believe that Paul knew that he had met lots of Macedonian women, but he had not yet met the Macedonian man that God called him to meet. And that he began to wonder if God was arranging this so that he could have an audience with the man he was supposed to meet. Does nobody have a sense of divine destiny in here? Do you not inherently know you were made for something just a little more? Yeah. Do you really think that it's just God's will for you to work in a warehouse and nothing else? Do you really think you're just an AC tech? These are all situations that you endure difficulties so that you have a chance to share something in the midst of your struggle with someone else. You might be at the Star of Hope this month. This is how they named it, Star of Hope. You are the Star of Hope. You're shining like the brightness of the heavens, or at least you're supposed to be. Our very lives are supposed to offer people hope. <coughs> Paul could have gotten out of this beating. He got out of the one in Acts 22. I believe sometimes it's necessary for the people of God to submit to injustice so that others might see the sincerity of what he has put in you. If you overpower me and beat me up, it says nothing. If I kneel before you and allow you to hurt me, it must be that I care about a greater purpose, huh? The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. I told Matthew and Cassidy when they came, Sugarland is a crazy place. It's like there's a religious spirit that teaches people all the right things to say, but you don't see any of the fruit. They are more interested in the quality of their lives than advancing the kingdom. And I have the strangest feeling that we will have to endure terrible opposition. You know, if you wanted to build the ark of God, did you know that you're the ark of his testimony? You are supposed to be carrying his testimony. The original box that carried his testimony was made of a strange tree. The New Testament word is called acacia. The Old Testament word is hard for us to say in church. It had deep roots. It grew down and it got thoroughly wrapped into the earth soil around rocks. And it had a thorny exterior. It was poisonous, orangish. Thorns on some of them, an acacia tree this long. You had to uproot that thing from the earth. You had to strip away the outer exterior that was meant to tell everybody, stay away. But if you could strip it away, what was inside was pure and white. Then Bezalel and Oliab took gold and they hammered it into that wood. And they fashioned the ark of God's testimony. 
In our lives, it's when we're stripped and beaten that God gets the chance to hammer His gold into us. It is not when we're prospered and pampered. It is during that difficult hour of uncertainty. It is during that crushing time that others get to see Him in you. As one brother in the parking lot today said, an alabaster jar does not yield its perfume unless you break the whole jar. And once you break it, friends, there's no saving any of it. It is all poured out. We have this all-surpassing power in these jars of clay so that in the most difficult duress, people can see it comes from God and not from us. Do you see why we must share our lives with After they had been severely flogged. I, want, I just don't want you to sleep. Say that word with me. Severely flogged. It's not enough to catch a beating that he could have got out of. It was severe. Severe by first century standards. You know, if a kid's going to get caned in Singapore, the whole world cries about it. These guys got beaten within an inch of their life for the call. How many of you have had the chance to even suffer a minor injustice for the gospel. <coughs> we want the power of God in our midst. Do you want to do what it takes to get it? Yes. The crowd joined in the attack. They're stripped and beaten. Look at verse 24. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Could Paul have gotten out of this situation he could have said, hey, I am a Roman citizen. What right do you have to charge to jail me without charges? He could have appealed to Caesar this day. He didn't. You have to consider <coughs> your calling worth being beaten for. You have to consider it worth being jailed, jailed in the inner cell and put in stocks. In fact, when others say, why would you stay in such a terrible situation? You should say, I'm chained to my calling with joy. When did we get the idea that the kingdom was advanced by going wherever it's easiest? <clears throat> when did we get the idea that the eternal gospel of God that his son had to die for was advanced by you being pampered? You get that idea when there's a disconnect between preaching and living. You get that idea when we admire men for their eloquence and not the character displayed in their lives. Amen. This ministry will always be formed around the character that Jesus has built in the men who are preaching. It will always be built around you sharing what's been shared with you, with everyone else. And friends, that's not a perfect doctrine. It is a tenacious lifestyle that says Jesus is worth it. You might not be the smartest person in the room. I'm certainly not, especially not in this room. You might not be the most talented. But who in here can honestly say something prevents you from being the most tenacious or loyal to Jesus? Because that's what wins lives. Yeah. It's not an eloquent tongue. If you could talk somebody into salvation, do you really think the devil can't talk them out of it? They need to see something in you they cannot live without. About midnight. What is that word midnight? You help me with it. I mean, what is just the most obvious meaning of midnight? is the middle of the night. So if it gets dark at 6 in the evening and it gets light at 6 the next morning, then we say midnight is 12, right? The middle of the darkest time, you're chained in an inner cell and in stocks and have been severely beaten. What are you doing? 
The Lord told us that what He would require of us is to be chained to the calling and adversity and to learn to sing praises <coughs> while others were complaining. Now, what would you do if the Lord told you that? I said, Lord, you got the wrong guy. You know me. I can't. He said, I will feel you and you can. You know, I had the little Moses conversation with him. Have y'all ever had that? If you haven't had that, then you've not really had a conversation with him, have you? Because if he's telling you to do something that's perfectly within your capability, you're lying or he is and he doesn't do that. It's always outside of your capability. Amen. That's what makes it supernatural. Yep. This is why we dream for 100,000 souls. This is why we dream for something bigger than we could accomplish ourselves. And how do you catch a vision like that? Is it that you hear an inspirational tape? Somebody send you a Hallmark card. How do you get a vision like that? You have to spend time with somebody that truly possesses it. In our ministry, we're not only going to share our lives with you. We're going to do our best to bring in other men of God that have demonstrated their character over years so that they can share their lives with you. The goal is that you would have a life that is polished by God, fit for His use. He told me that He would make us a magnet and He would draw the precious metals of the earth to us. And it would be our job to polish them for His service. Anybody in here being polished? Is the pad a little abrasive sometimes? That's what real ministry is. Everybody likes to quote iron sharpening iron, right? We all know the verse, and we, oh, that's iron sharpening. Have you ever seen it done? You have to remove metal, friends. There has to be a collision, a spark, some smoke. The things that you truly learn in the gospel are not the things that you neatly ascend to. They're the ones that you're dramatically confronted with. They're the ones that you're sure you're right about until you get before the Lord, and He crushes you and says no. If you're not changing your mind occasionally, you're not growing. Amen. You should be confronted with a life that makes you rethink your neat little package doctrines. Yep. You should be confronted with a life that is an exception to the rule for the glory of God. And you realize that God is bigger than we've made Him. Oh, they're fastened, and it's midnight. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. We learned yet to praise in our adversity. Have we? Some of you can't even stay awake in church. <laughs> Wake up, sweetheart. Wake up in the name of Jesus. Where you got to stand up, stand up. In the middle of the night, they are singing praises after catching a severe beating. You know what? That's worth listening to. Amen. Now, you can find anybody whining in this circumstance, and you should tune them out. You can find anybody cursed in this circumstance, and you should tune them out. But you find somebody's getting the holy wine beat out of them in the middle of the night, and they're praising God. Now, that's a life I want to listen to. Amen. You know, I don't care whether his T's are crossed and his I's are dotted. I don't care whether he speaks like Charles Spurgeon. I don't care. That's a man I want to get to know. How are they going to know if you are not living next to them? How are they going to know if you don't share your life with them? It's impractical to have meetings in our home at this point. We do it anyway. It's impractical to try to build a church that way. We need to make something else the focal point that we can all rally around. Jesus is the focal point. Amen. He is the focal point. Amen. 
And it's the focal point in Fred's life and in Steve's life and in Spencer's life just as much as mine. They began to worship and praise God and listen to how the people responded. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. How do you get the desire of the nations, friends? It's not build a beautiful sanctuary. It's you live a life in the middle of a great shaking. I want to tell you that these men were not at their best. They didn't have on their Sunday finest. They were not perfectly anointed with oil and smelling nice. They were desperate for God in a desperate situation. And what came out of them when squeezed in the press of Gethsemane was praises. And others listened. And heaven listened. And responded with the power to change a life. Amen. The power to change a life. How many people did they go to Macedonia for? Well, if you asked one of them, he'd say, we went for the nation. You asked another one, he'd say, we went for a family. But you asked the man who had the vision, he'd say, I went because I saw a Macedonian man. <coughs> you want to change families? You want to change nations? It starts one life at a time. Let us see how this plays out. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Oh, that we could have this in our church services. Every chain comes loose. Every prison door opened. In the last five or six weeks, we've seen many chains fall off, haven't we? Yeah. We've seen many prison doors open, haven't we? Yeah. It never happens if one life didn't daringly reach out to another. Yep. If one life didn't say, you know what? I think we can do better than this. It was not me who decided to buy a bus. It was not the elders who decided to buy a bus. I mean, at the end of the day, somebody had to write a check for it. But even that wasn't our money. Men in this church said, we have a vision. We have a vision for the lost. We have a vision for the homeless. I said, you know what? That agrees with our vision. <coughs> and then God shook the earth and made it possible. So that the largest, most respectable church in the area that I grew up in had a bus that they needed to get rid of. And then a crazy, bold individual in here called them and said, what we're going to do with it? And said, how do you feel about your price now? Long, long pause. Right? You want 10 grand? We want to save souls. You want 5 grand? We want to save souls. You want $4,500? We want to save souls. How do you feel about it now? Well, what can you afford? <laughs> That's about our price. <laughs> Come on, Jesus! This is the best example that I have to offer you of the way that we know ministry works. We are preparing people for the calling, sharing our lives with them, and God begins to speak to them vision, and we stand with them in their vision. This is not all about one man and one vision. This is about the people of God. This is about carrying out the kingdom. And from this ministry, we've birthed ministries in Chicago. We've birthed ministries in Arkansas. And we are touching at least five continents right now because it's not about us. 
very possible that submission ministries will have a church in the third ward at some point soon. I hope to stand up one day and say, friends, who has caught the vision? Can we send 50 people with Zeke? Can we send 50 people with him? We hope to do these things because this is the kingdom. But it starts with sharing a life so that you have the same message. You have the same power. You glean from each other's experiences. God sends one man to work with another one so that they might polish each other. <clears throat> Has he been faithful to our ministry? Yes. We're anything but stale and stacked. Stripped, beaten, imprisoned, fastened to the stocks, midnight, but praising. And so they saw the foundations of the prison shake. Look at verse 27. It's prophetic. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself. There's an awakening that happens. When you become awake to the realities of God, a death sentence begins to grow in your heart. You begin to understand how incredibly righteous He is and how unrighteous you have been. You begin to realize that He has sent people to you to testify to you in the midst of your difficult hour. And they have shared difficulty with you and you have ignored the message. You begin to get a burden for prophets that were sawed in two to bring you the truth that you cared so little about that it sat on the back dash of your car. An awakening is happening. Paul said of it in Corinthians, Awake, O sleeper, that Christ's light might shine on you. Well, when the light of Christ shines upon you, it causes a death sentence. You can no longer live the way that you always lived. You want to take out a sword and say the old life has to die now. Everybody comes to the altar because they want to be healed. Everybody comes to the altar because they want to be touched. Everybody dreams of changing the world and no one dreams of changing themselves. You want to know where the move of God starts? It's not with the earthquake. It's with the jailer waking up. We could have had an earthquake and some said it thundered and some said God spoke. But when there's an awakening in the jailer, oh, now we have a chance for a nation because the jailer happens to be a man. The first Macedonian man that the biblical account shares with us. And he just woke up. Now he wakes up and he sees his situation. He sees how very good God has been. He sees a consequence in his future. He sees a death sentence. How did you come to the king, friends? If you didn't wake up, if you didn't get a death sentence, then you also have not had a pardon. Do you hear me? If you never came to the place where you said, I deserve to die, he has been so very good to me, and I have been incurably wicked. Then you have not yet woken up. You are still living a dream life and will wake up at a judgment in the hands of an angry God because you ignored something that was precious. You're not here today because a magistrate drug you here. You're here because of the providence of a loving God. Yes. Amen. The message is, wake up. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. 
when I came to Sugar Land and the Lord spoke to me from Acts 16, I got in the car and I drove to see Matthew and I said, the people are imprisoned and they don't know it. They're speaking religious speech and they don't know it's not even of the right spirit. But if we will chain ourselves to the call of God, if we will be unrelentlessly praising and tenacious about pursuing Him, God will break open their prison doors. And those that have a death sentence in their heart can receive a pardon. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all, what's it say? What if he wasn't there? Listen, friends, when people are waking up to a God consciousness, when they're waking up to their true position as sinners, monstrous enemies of God, when they're waking up to that because the Spirit of God is on them, what happens if you are not there? The same moment of harvest in someone's life might also be a moment of incredible deception. How many of our young people are killing themselves? How many people are turning to any altering substance they can? Perhaps they've come to a conclusion that the life they're living is not worth living. And they're right. But they've come to the wrong conclusion about it. There is a death sentence in the heart of a lost human being. And it's the first step towards a resurrection. See, if we don't come to a place where we die, we cannot come to a place where we truly live. Instead, we carry around a dream landscape. And we act as if this reality is the one that matters. What a heavy word. And yet it is what founded our ministry. We are all here. The jailer called for lights. Who called for the light? When you have the death sentence in your heart, when you've woken up to your true condition, you need help and you ask for it. You say, light, please, light. It's dark. It's so very dark. I need light. What happens if the light of the world is not there? See, friends, if we don't go, if we don't share, if we are not there, in the place God called us to be, what happens to them? We all want a great awakening. We want a great move of God. What happens to them if there's a great move of God and there are no great men of God to live next to them? Oh my goodness, but Paul was there. And not just Paul. Timothy and Silas were there. One man saw a vision, others joined him in it, and it begins to change of a great nation. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Salvation requires action, friends. It requires a change. It requires a step in a new direction. It requires a complete about face. Amen. See, if you know that you're walking in death, if you've been wakened to your true condition, you don't want to walk in it anymore. The prodigal son is no longer trying to spend his inheritance with pigs. He simply wants to go back to his father. Amen. Amen. Too 
long our preaching and teaching has so de-emphasized this that we think we can live with pigs and call ourselves promised sons. <coughs> when we wake to our true condition, we desire change. Amen. I had such an awakening. Everybody that has ever spent a few hours in my home has got the chance to hear about the awakening. The Lord spoke to me and the end result of that was a cry out of the depths of my being. Lord, change me! And that change has affected my family and your family and the nations. This is the only way I know to do it. It's the way the Lord has taught me and so it's the way that I teach you. We're going to get more organized about discipleship. We're going to provide classes. We're going to provide everything we know to provide. And at the end of the day, if you don't share one life with another, you have lots of movement, but no, lots of motion, but no real movement. You have all smoke and no fire. You have all thunder and no rain. You know, God hates trees that do not produce fruit. Yeah. They called for lights. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, because the one man said, come help us. By the way, Macedonia became seriously Christian-laden after this. Apparently, one man reaching out to his family and one family reaching out to a nation was God's desired method. How many of us say that Abraham is Father Abraham? Do you agree with that statement? That few of you? How many of you agree that Father Abraham is Father Abraham? Yes. We heard in a message last week and rightly heard it that Abraham grasped the eternal, that he was looking for that city whose builder and architect was God, and that God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees in search of the eternal, and it's all true. Genesis 18 also says that God chose Abraham because he would teach his children. If he only called Abraham and Abraham did nothing with it, then how do you have a nation? He starts with a man. He moves to the man's family and he built the nation of God around the one man and his family. And now he uses that nation to reach the nations of the world or families of nations. It has always been one life, one family, one nation. We didn't create it. It was just spoken to us and then we saw it in the Word. Exodus 15 has one more verse that I need to cover, and then there's a short video. Have you grown impatient with me? No. Are you so very tired? Wake up. Let us learn our true state. Are you in Exodus 15? There. Go to Exodus 15, 27. This was a revelation this year. We kind of finished a 10, 12 year pursuit of Lord, how do we carry this out? Lord, I know how to take 10 men and disciple them. I don't really know how to get those 10 men to disciple 10 themselves. I don't know how to do that. You're going to have to show me. And in the midst of that, I began to see something in the Word. And we handed out nations to the church. Do you remember that? How many of you have nations on your walls? Nations to the church so that you could teach your kids to pray and become concerned about the nations, that you could learn about them. My children can all quote facts about the nations. We took down our TV sets and put up the nations for prayer time. It was all based on this. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. 
and they camped there near the water. Wow, what a strange verse. <coughs> twelve throughout the Bible had to do with God's special election. The twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles. Seventy was the number from Genesis 10 when Ham, Shem, and Japheth had children. All of their children added to 70. 70 represented the world always. So Jesus had 12 disciples and he sent them out to the lost sheep of Israel only. And then he had 70 disciples and he sent them out to the world at large. We see this pattern throughout the book. And what this spoke to me was if you will take a small number that I send you. And you will teach them to tap into me the spring of living water. I will make them feed the world. See, 12 springs fed 70 palm trees. You can take a small congregation of people, and if the kingdom of God is really formed in them, then from them you can feed the entire world. Amen. The entire nation of Israel was fed at Elim. And they were really brought there to be instructed about something. About bitter waters turning sweet. They were brought there to be instructed about something. That God wanted to take 12 steps and feed the whole world. I believe you're here because of election today. I believe that this is the hour of your awakening to a greater purpose. I have a vision for your life. Of something more than simply making money and being I quite literally believe you were supposed to change the world. <clears throat> I want to show you another man who believes that you're supposed to change the world. His name is Brother Andrew. He's most famous for smuggling Bibles into closed countries, especially countries like China. John, will you play that video? <laughs> The man who started the Open Doors Ministry is challenging Christians to risk their lives to preach the gospel in the Muslim world. The 84-year-old missionary is best known as Brother Andrew. Andrew. He became famous for smuggling Bibles into communist countries during the Cold War. Brother Andrew says if missionaries are killed for, their, for sharing their faith, they go to heaven anyway, so what's the problem? Brother Andrew praises ministries for their humanitarian work in closed countries, but he says a missionary's goal should always be to preach the gospel to the lost. Otherwise, people can, quote, go to hell with a full stomach. Oh, my goodness. Brother Andrew shared something that is so basic to the faith. Turn that light back on, Dave. So basic, basic to the faith. Why are you trying to hold on to your life? If you lost it, you gain life anyway. Amen. Now, this was shared on CBN's website. Is CBN pretty well known as a Christian organization? Yes. If I'm not mistaken, that stands for the Christian Broadcasting Network, right? It's not the Atheist Broadcast Network. It's not the Wiccan Broadcast Network, right? I mean, this is a, this is a Christian organization, yeah? I read Pat Robertson's book, Shout It From the Rooftop. I, I like the man. I, I don't know what you think about him, and I leave that between you and God. But I like what they do. So I clicked on the comments. There are eight total comments to this message. You can click on it today and see on CBN's website, eight people out of their entire audience found it worthwhile to respond to Brother Andrew's call. Let me read you the first one. Is that okay? Yes. I mean, y'all will allow me to do that? Yes. Well, I agree with this to a point. But it would be a better idea for Christians in these Muslim countries to just leave. 
why put yourself in harm's way? If you're not wanted, just leave. As far as risking our lives for Muslims, seriously, dude, what good is a dead Christian? That's the number one comment. It was left on January 10th at 12 p.m. And the man's name, you know, his screen handle, is a Christian name. It's Resurrection 1961. <coughs> Would you think that that kind of implies that he's at least been around since 1961? What good is a dead Christian? What good is a dead Savior? What good is a crucified Christ? <coughs> Matthew 16, 24 through 25 teaches us that if you want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. If you want to lose your life, then you will find it. It says if anyone wants to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. Can we really ask what good is a dead Christian? Really, is there anybody in here that agrees with this comment? Maybe comment number two gets better. Crying in the wilderness is the handle. It is difficult enough to witness in the U.S. of A. I guess if someone just wants the crown of martyrdom, they could go. Am I the only one that is a little sickening by this? Those are the top two responses. Here's response number four. Not all Christians are called to evangelize. Wow. Especially in Muslim countries. Sure, if you want to risk your life, you can go to Boko Haram neighborhood and start preaching Christianity. I just think Brother Andrew is thinking about his days. He's forgotten that we have the TV and the Internet. You know, Matthew 10, 7 says, as you go, preach. As you go, preach. Not as you send the Internet message. Not as you beam in your TV. As you go, preach. But this is how impersonal the gospel has become. And by the way, does it say, as you go preach only? What does it say? As you go preach the gospel, what? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. How are you going to do that through the TV and the internet? Oh, that's right, we eliminated that as well. Well, maybe, maybe the last comment gets better. I mean, this is pretty dismal. This is Olympus. Olympus. Uh, X, January 10th, 1139. Just a note, what about approaching a Muslim friend and offering him or her a Bible right here? Just don't discuss Israel with them. That will turn them away and make them angry. That's right. Let's change the gospel to be more palatable because we would never want to make someone angry. Could you put Matthew 1034 on the screen? Angry. Make someone angry. Did I make you angry talking about wake up today? Did I make you angry talking about being freed from sin and under a death sentence? Jesus said, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He goes on to talk about family divisions. The most personal, difficult family divisions. You see that the gospel is going to draw a clear line. I don't care whether I make the Muslim world angry any more than I care if I make the Christian world angry. Most of need to be made angry. I care if we make a clear distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. I care if we count the cost and require death before resurrection. Why is baptism so important, friends? I mean, you get wet in a shower, hopefully daily. Why is it so important? Someone whispered obedience. 
as important <coughs> as obedience. I bet you go to Romans 6. Let's, let's, just, let's just chat for a second about why we're about to baptize people. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? Sure, the church allows it. So that grace may increase? Yes, if grace is really grace, then it's just there as much as you want, right? Isn't that what we're hearing? By no means. This word, if spoken by a Hebrew-speaking person, is halafalal. I know, it sounds like I cleared my throat. But if you were a Hebrew-speaking person, by by no means, or uh, some translations say, heaven forbid, is the strongest negation available to you in decent speech. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Yes. It's as close to cursing as the apostle can come. <coughs> the thought that we would simply say we were living for Christ while sinning brought out of him something that men would consider possibly profane if not used in the right context. It was an abhorrent idea to him. You see why I say that the priesthood is going to obey the message last week? We're not going to accept anything less than what God says is right. We died to sin. When did you die to sin, friends? How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Did you have an awakening that you were a sinner? Did you have an awakening that you deserved death? And were you buried? See, what I find over and over and over is, oh yeah, when I was, when I was uh, just eight years old, uh, I was baptized. I was born again. Did your life change? Well, no, I was a kid. What were you baptized into, my friend? A church? A, a, a parent's approval? A, a long-standing tradition? See, our baptism marks the day that we buried the guy who deserved to die. Our baptism marks the day you were lowered into a watery grave. Our baptism marks the day that you announced to the whole world, Never again. It's dead. I count myself dead to sin and I'm raised to walk a new life. So I ask you a question. When your life really changed, did you announce it publicly? Did you announce it publicly with a water baptism? And let us remember that the nation of Israel had no problem with John preaching to whores, tax collectors. They had no problem with that. Of course they need to repent. But as soon as he turned to the leaders and said, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, they were angry and rejected God's purpose for their life, Luke says. So we have no problem with those. Those people need to mark that day. I'm asking you, those of you that I've known a long time, when did you mark that day? My wife was sitting in a, uh, in a little storefront church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, I was ordained, was a pastor on staff, and the burden of the Holy Ghost fell upon her, as did my father at almost 56 years old. They had loved Jesus a long time, but they realized that their profession when they were children was but a prayer and a hope. And now they were walking with Him in a way that made everything else pale in comparison, and they wanted to announce it to the world. 
Can you imagine that it was hard for a pastor's wife to step forward and say, I need to be baptized? Or the pastor's father, I need to be baptized? But heaven met them right there in that moment. I think that if you could ask my wife, and you can, you have to wait to ask my father if you're lucky to make the kingdom of God. They were never again the same. It was among the first discussions that David and I had. We were painting. David got hold of somebody that was challenging his faith. How dare them do that? <laughs> Whether they were right or wrong made no difference. The result is David walked with God in a new way. And he made a public proclamation. Amen. Amen. We're going to walk out to water out there. We do not do heated baptismals. <laughs> Anybody in here been to a funeral with a heated casket? <laughs> we don't do it. Not only do we not do it now, if it was 20 degrees outside, we wouldn't do it then. For me, the standard of baptism were two men standing in a river in Africa. The current was swift, so one took a spear and jammed it into the ground so that he didn't float away while he was baptizing his friend. He dunked his friend in the name of Jesus because that's how they did baptism. And he arose, the man couldn't move. And he said, what's wrong? And he said, you put the spear all the way through my foot. He said, why didn't you say something? He said, I thought it was part of the ceremony. <laughs> Friends, there's an awakening that needs to occur. I'm going to India, so I can't help but think of one last story. And I hate preachers who just tell endless stories, so I'm going to make it short for you. Queen Victoria had been presented with a jewel during the British occupation of India. It was a diamond, a beautiful diamond, the world's largest at the time. Now the Maharaja of Punjab was a grown man. He was a child when it was presented on his behalf. And he committed a diplomatic faux pas that made all of the ambassadors just cringe. While in the presence of Queen Victoria, he asked to see the gift his nation had given England. I mean, this is the kind of thing that make reporters start to cringe. After some <coughs> scurrying around, they produced for him the diamond that had been kept in a tower in London. He committed another diplomatic faux pas. He took it out of the hands of the man who was showing it to him and he held it in his hand. At that moment, he looked at the queen and he said, I want to bow right now as an adult and pay my allegiance to you. I did this in former years when I was a child and didn't really understand the cost of what I was giving. And I wanted to give you my allegiance as an adult here today and out of a full and willing heart present you with my country's most precious jewel. It's a sensitive issue with people about baptism. Not that I don't care about your sensitivities. I just care about Jesus a lot more. You didn't understand what you were giving, then you didn't give something that is God's best. And I want to tell you, it doesn't invalidate it doesn't throw away. It doesn't insult parents. It honors God when you take difficult steps. <coughs> Can you say amen to that? Amen. Yeah. Yeah.